As was mentioned previously, I think Gary pointed it out as he began the announcements earlier, how thankful we are, not only for the membership, the presence of each and every member here, but also the visitors who are with us today. And it's our sincere wish that all of us could be encouraged, built up, and edified in things of most holy character. 2 Peter 1, 1 still lays a great appreciation to those of like precious faith. And today, for every Christian that's here, and if you're not, if you're not a member of the body of Christ, we trust that the things we share from the Word of God will be encouraging and helpful to you to think truly about those matters of eternal significance for you. In fact, as you give thought to the lesson entitled Philip and Personal Work, we'll cast the spotlight a bit this morning on the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. It is to that chapter I would invite you to come with me for the next few moments. Perhaps as we begin it, though, it might be well to use some of these introductory comments. It is amazing when you and I think about personal work and that phrase as it has come to be used in such a rather notable fashion. One might, in fact, ask some good questions. As often as we hear it, it is fair to ask, what is personal work? In terms of religious usage, what is meant by that phrase? How does one carry it out? Does the Word of God give us any helpful ideas about not only what it is, but also how we might more effectively involve ourselves in it? The basic idea behind it is pretty simple. Merely the effort on an individual's part, you and me, to share with someone else the blessed message of salvation found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not anything more sophisticated. It's not anything more advanced than merely that. But as we give thought to attempting to do that very thing today, how do we do it? The example in Acts chapter 8 perhaps will shed forth to us some observations that can be very illuminating and very helpful. It is to that particular text I would invite you to turn with me and let us just read all of it in its entirety. In Acts 8, let's begin reading in verse 26, and I'll read all the way through verse number 39. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Go, I'm sorry, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way, which goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to the chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the Scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. 
And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. I suppose that has been a rather amazing passage that many of us have read countless times over the years. Focusing upon the various elements of its presentation, casting the matter upon the nature of what the Holy Spirit wished for us to know. From that, I would simply ask you to extract with me a few lessons, observations as I've called them. What can you and I use from this to help us in our effort to be personal workers for the Lord? We might well begin by noting the following. First of all, the attitude that we see displayed in the man known as Philip. This chapter, the eighth chapter of Acts, is a chapter that says much to us about this gentleman named Philip. We first see him early in the chapter in terms of his work in Samaria, but also we now find that he was also involved in this work in other places. Did you notice as we began that reading in verses 26 and 27, something amazing was told to us about Philip. First of all, let's put it in its context. Philip was having notable success in the Samaritan region, that area known as Samaria and the city that went with it. In fact, we noticed in verses 8 and 9, there was great joy in Samaria because Philip brought the gospel and preached it with such boldness. We notice in verse number 12, a highlighted feature of that success. It says, When they heard Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they believed it and were baptized, both men and women. There was great success in Samaria. The gospel was finding fertile ground. As many heard it, they responded with joy. But yet, as you and I noticed in verse 26, the angel says, and to Philip, arise and go toward the south. Philip was called on to leave, at least for the time being, this area of great value and great interest and great success and go to the south. And did you notice? This was a desert place to which he was being sent. All the while, one might have thought Philip would at least express a bit of hesitation. But Lord, here in Samaria, the work of the gospel is going so well. The work, in fact, of the message of the church, the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of it is meeting with such great response in the life and times of the men and women here. Not the slightest hesitation is found in Philip. Did you notice how verse 27 begins? It simply says, He arose and went. Without the slightest delay... Without the slightest bit of procrastination, Philip, in fact, proceeded to move toward this area to which the Spirit was sending him. Maybe we should then ask, what about you and me today? This message of evangelism, striving to share with others the marvelous message of Jesus that we have, we too are given the urgings of the Scriptures to have an interest in that, aren't we? Didn't Jesus say in... Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Admittedly, that initial statement was given to those apostles of the Master. 
but by the character of inspiration, they have been shed forth to every Christian throughout all the arena of time, haven't they? We have the blessed privilege, just like Paul and just like many others of the New Testament era, to share that message of Jesus with those about us, be it our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our acquaintances, our family members, or otherwise. I wonder what our attitude is. Philip just says he arose and went. Are you and I those who arise and go? Or do we put off that task? Do we find it uninteresting? Do we fail to appreciate it? May we, like Philip, arise and go when it comes to sharing the love we have for the Lord with those about us. I suppose, though, that does lead us to another consideration. We notice this matter not only in Philip's attitude, but doesn't it highlight this? The value of a single soul. The value and estimated worth of a single individual. Think again about what was said concerning Philip. Here was Philip laboring in an area where it says there was already noteworthy success. I wonder how many were being baptized each day, the Scripture doesn't say. But yet, here the angel spoke to Philip and gave him a direct order. You go into that place in the south between Jerusalem and Gaza. You go to that area which is desert. Isn't it a bit interesting that at this point, at least in verse 26, Philip wasn't even told what, was going, what he was going to find there. He was just told to go. And later the Spirit told him to join himself to the chariot. We, of course, in the aftermath learned then the value of the single soul that was that Ethiopian nobleman, that single individual's worth in the eyes of God. Maybe that helps us appreciate this. That worth has not been diminished in the slightest, has it? Every single individual here in the sound of my voice, and yea, every single individual that you and I know is valuable because of the perspective of eternity on the soul that is that individual. That individual is not going to die. And that individual is going to stand before the great presence of the God of heaven and for all eternity will find him or herself in either a lovely place called heaven or a despicable place called hell. It's one or the other. And there's only one way toward that place in heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. And so you and I have the message that is the message of Christ. Every person needs to hear it, to obey it, needs to live in accordance to it. And so every person in such a valuable way needs to be made aware of the blessed message of the truth of God. As you think about the geography of this, maybe it's interesting to think of it in the following way. We then see that for the sake of this one soul, Philip was told to leave Samaria, to arrive at this place between Jerusalem and Gaza, and there he was to preach. And that he did to one individual, to one man, this Ethiopian nobleman whose name is not even given to us. Isn't that amazing? Fifty miles roughly, at least by way of the map, it would be certainly between 40 and 50 miles, and here he was going to a desert area. And why? So that he could preach the gospel to a man whose heart was excited and ready to receive it. Isn't that interesting? The value again of one precious soul. But we find that not only set before us in a passage like this one, 
Do we not see it in some other places as well? Did not Jesus teach in Luke 15 about that remarkable set of parables that we remember so well? There were 99 sheep safe in the master's fold, or at least in a safe, confining place. There was one that had gone out and was astray. And yet he left the 99 and went to find the one, and he rejoiced when he found it and brought it back to be with the other 99 safe ones. Later in that same particular chapter, we learn about the lost coin and finally the lost boy. And in each instance, what great celebration there was over the, when the character of that which was lost had been found. Maybe that highlights to us that there are members of the Lord's body who at one time were faithful. But due to matters in life that have come their way and maybe the very foolish choices they've made, they've left the Lord aside and they've begun to walk in the other pathways. We need to invite them and urge them to realize the character of the time that they're now in, and they would in fact come back to their first love. Revelation 2 verse 5. There are of course others, like this Ethiopian nobleman, who have never responded the first time, and yet they too are immortal souls, and they too need to be taught, and they too need to have the precious opportunity of obeying the message that shall lead to their eternal salvation. We find so many interesting truths about evangelism, even from this basic passage. Perhaps notice yet another one. There are some things that are relatively unimportant as we look at this text. When you and I think about personal work, and we think about sharing the message of faith with someone else... There are some things from here that apparently meant no difference at all. Here are just a few of them. It seems fair to say that Philip was most likely of a far different ethnic background, financial status, as well as character perhaps even of color of skin than was this Ethiopian eunuch. And yet Philip had not the slightest hesitation when he saw him. When he was told to join himself to the chariot, that he did. And isn't it grateful to think about the success that he had? Sometimes today, given the way that folks can fly around the world in airplanes and settle in different places, you and I can come face to face with someone not of the same color as we, someone of far different ethnic background as we, someone that may have either far more or far less money than we. And yet, that should not be a determining factor by itself in our sharing the message of the gospel with them. Isn't it fair to look at just a few of these verses? In Romans 2.11, we learn the God of heaven Himself is no respecter of persons. In Acts 10 verses 34 and 35, wasn't it Peter, prior to his great sermon and description of Cornelius and his family, it was there he said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Can't we be glad for passages that remind us of the central feature of what truly is most important? Fearing God and being true to Him. It does remind us a bit of Ecclesiastes 12 verses 13 and 14, doesn't it? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. The character then of this episode in Acts chapter 8 still tells us 
that as we think about the nature of these precious individuals and our opportunity to share with them the gospel, doesn't it remind us of maybe that last thought? The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to save one and all. His blood can save any individual as long as that person will simply obey the things that the Christ has delivered. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. You and I have the blessing of sharing that message of salvation with someone else, that they too might have the luxurious privilege of obeying it and having their soul cleansed from sin so that they can live right and enjoy also and hope that great home in heaven one sweet day. As you and I think about this particular lesson, maybe there are others also easily seen in the character of this message. It seems to me the language of verses 28 through 30 is very telling. Maybe there is an attribute of urgency to be seen in it. Did you note the statement about Philip again? I'd invite you to read it with me in verse number 30. After the Spirit had said in verse 29 to join himself to the chariot, the text then says, And Philip ran thither to him. He didn't just walk. He didn't saunter. He didn't amble. He ran to the chariot. It seems as if there was a degree of excitement in the effort of Philip, a degree not only of excitement, but in fact of earnest wishing to be able to carry out what the Spirit had in store for him to do. Maybe that challenges us to think also about the matter of urgency. It is sometimes a rather startling reality to appreciate the number of people that are leaving this life in death every second. In fact, it has now been well known for quite some time you can look up almost any number of statistics that point out that roughly two people die worldwide every second. Two individuals every second are passing from the scenes of this life, entering the realm of no return in the sense that their fate is sealed. Didn't the Hebrew writer say, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. They are leaving this world and the next major matter that they shall face is a judgment. Will they be ready? So many of them are not. So many of them have not lived in compliance and obedience to the gospel message. No wonder there's an element of urgency in the matter of evangelism, sharing with others in personal work the things of God. We notice that Philip ran thither to the chariot. That leads me to ask you to think about perhaps the urgency of 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Wasn't it Paul who himself on more than one occasion could say, Woe is it to me if I preach not the gospel? It was here he said, Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to help someone else learn the message of truth. Today is the day to share with them so that before they slip into eternity, they'll at least have opportunity to respond Today is the day of salvation. The Hebrew writer later would say something very similar in Hebrews 3 verse 12 and later on at the end of Hebrews chapter 4. Remarkably, we find then that we each have an opportunity to help someone else learn the truth. As you think about urgency, you'll notice one of the tactics that Philip used 
was a very interesting one. Did you notice in verses 31 and following? We notice that it says, Philip asked, Understandest thou what thou readest? He began his personal work session with a question. It wasn't a condemning question. It was simply a question of inquisition, a question of asking something. Do you understand what you're reading? Do you appreciate the message of the prophet? Do you have a sense of what was being foretold in those earlier days? Does the highlighted character of the prophecy make sense to you? Interesting, isn't it? I suspect not only in the first century, but that might be a very good thing for you and me to keep in mind. We live in a world that by and large is known for its Bible ignorance. Although the Bible is the most published book in the, in the world, by and large people are still ignorant of it. They don't read it. And those that often do sit at the feet of those who do teach it, don't teach it correctly. And they're too willing to listen to those that teach false doctrine and so in a very real sense. There's a great deal of Bible ignorance in our world. How many of your co-workers and mine do you think would be fairly conversant with the sacred text? How many of your neighbors and mine do you suppose would have a fairly good working knowledge of the Bible? Could they tell you how many books are in it? Could they even tell you just the basic nature of what books tell about the life of Jesus? My guess is the vast majority of people around you and me likely would not be able to correctly answer the most basic questions like that. Because of that, we would need to be a bit wise as we approach them and hopefully speak with them about Jesus. Maybe we could approach it with some very simple, basic questions like Philip did. For that reason, it wouldn't be wise to overwhelm them with your and my extensive Bible knowledge at the outset. That would just turn them off, likely, and it would likely drive a wedge between them that they would be unwilling to listen to much else that we had to say. It would be far better in a very basic way to somewhat plow the ground a bit, develop a working relationship, and then one can move on to a more set of meatier matters where we could challenge them with some thoughts about the nature of what they believe and why they believe and where did they learn that and what verses do you have that information. With that idea of questions in mind, isn't it interesting that from time to time, other individuals in the Bible, like Jesus, also use that same form? In Mark chapter 5, for example, a very impressive consideration. You remember the scene well. There was a man at that time who, in fact, was very much beside himself because he had evil spirit in him. That was the same one, by the way, the Lord eventually cast out and it went and cast the swine. They ran down the hill into the, into the water. But here was a man that was a wild man. He lived in the tombs. He was bound by chains, but yet they couldn't even hold him. He was unclothed. He was very much a person most of us would think to avoid. We want nothing to do with him. I don't even want to be near him. He's dangerous. The Lord approached him, asked him some simple questions, calmed that man down and save that man's soul because Jesus not only taught him, he wanted to even be with Jesus after the fact. He wanted to accompany the Lord and be one of his closest followers. Notice though that Jesus approached him with calmness. He approached him not in a defensive way, but rather simply striving to let him know the Lord cared about him. 
and he wanted to make things better for him. At the most basic level, isn't that what we should do? We care about people. We want them to be saved, and so we want to share with them not what will harm them, not what will hurt them, not what will drive them to inconvenience, but what in fact will let them be saved. No wonder then that leads us perhaps to the final two lessons of the time this morning. In addition to all these things, we now can focus on verse 35. When this man did show an interest in what Philip had to say, what was it that Philip taught him? Verse 35, in such a resounding fashion, simply says, Philip opened his mouth and began at that same Scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Philip didn't preach philosophy, socialism, relativity, the matters of cultural or social graces. He didn't preach opinion or suggestion. He taught Jesus. Sounds much like the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1, doesn't it? Brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For the next verse it says, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul knew that although he could share many things with the church in Corinth, he could talk to them about philosophy, and Paul was schooled in all of it. He could talk to them about the various logic of the Stoics and the Epicureans. Paul said, that will do you no good. I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And today, when you and I have the privilege of speaking with someone about the truth, may we focus on Christ. Preach to them Jesus and let them know that's the central message. It is amazing again today how such falseness leads us to notice that so many religious circles teach a social matter, entertainment-based issues, but that's not what Philip taught. And that isn't what we should teach either. Philip preached Jesus. And how often do we notice that there is no substitute for the Master? In Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9 through 9, didn't Jesus Himself say that any time we substitute something for His teaching putting the doctrines of men in place of the commandments of God, we do error and we lead to what's vanity and what really is more a matter of vainness. And so it is the final message of our time this morning would be this one. What confidence there can be in you and in me. There are times I suspect all of us feel a bit hesitant. We have questions about the nature of sharing the message with someone else. Perhaps we wonder, do I know enough? What if he or she asked me this question? How would I answer it? And maybe in light of those kind of doubts, we just don't ever broach the subject at all. But may we, in an interest, have a greater deal of confidence than that. Didn't Jesus promise those apostles, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world? And didn't the Lord, in fact, promise to you and me in Hebrews 13, verses 5, 6, and 7, that again, I'll be with you always. As we give thought to the Lord being with us, we have the privilege and the blessed promise of His Scriptures at our knowledge. You and I have set through hours and hours. In fact, if you count up the hours, it would number into the days and even months of Bible lessons and sermons. You know a good deal about the sacred text. Be willing to share that with others. And if you are asked a question that you do not know, 
there's no harm in saying, let me study that a few days and I'll get back with you. Give me an opportunity to put some thoughts together so that I can be sure that I'm teaching exactly what the Bible says. Quite often that may impress the person that you really are most interested in what the Bible teaches. If all of those things certainly are things we could keep in mind, wouldn't it be fair to close the lesson by noting, you and I have every opportunity to appreciate we can help someone else, learn the truth of God and walk pleasingly in this life and stand before God acceptably at judgment. That is a great privilege. No wonder Paul lifted so high the thought in 1 Corinthians 3.8 of being a fellow worker with God. Today, what about you and me as we each address our own life in the matter of evangelism? Are we striving to help others by way of the things that we do and say? Are we helping them learn more about Jesus? Here's the closing thoughts of the lesson today. When you and I think about evangelism, may we, like Philip, run to the opportunities to do it and may we pray that God will bless us with contacts, individuals like that eunuch who had a heart wanting to learn, who had a mind willing to listen, and who had a disposition to want to know more. If we encounter people like that, they will, be, they will respond to the truth because the truth is still what the Lord said, "...ye shall know the truth." And the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. This very day, as you and I think about ourselves, are we striving to be the servants of the Master and help evangelize those that we know? May we be encouraged to help to strive to do that very thing. Today, if there might be one or more in this audience that's not right with God, maybe you've never rendered initial obedience to the Master, why not today? Jesus, in fact, died that you might have a plan of salvation that you might come in contact with His blood and that you might be saved from sin. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If you have accomplished that at some point in life, but at this moment, due to your own failures and due to your own sins, you know that things are not well with your soul. Why not this very day? Make things right. He has promised upon your repentance and confession that He will forgive. Why not invite us to pray with you and for you? We'd be happy to do that. If we could be of help to any person in this audience today, we'd be delighted to accomplish that need. If only you'd let us know while together we stand and while we sing.